There's one thing that I've noticed over the years while working as a chaplain. People are, in many ways, very similar. No matter what our backgrounds are, no matter how dissimilar we may seem to each other, we have the same feelings inside. One of them is regret. Not everyone has deep misgivings about their past, but with age, many, many people have regrets about what they've done or what they've not done. Recently, I was out on a walk and coming toward me was a man about my age. He seemed familiar and I thought maybe he was a neighbor. Just as I was about to acknowledge him and say hi, he said, Professor King. I said yes and then added that I was sorry, but I didn't remember his name. He smiled and said that was okay, that as an older student, he had taken a class from me several years before. Then I remembered him. We'll call him Bobby. He had taken my 3D modeling and animation class. He hadn't been the most artistic person, but he had taken on a big project and had spent an enormous amount of time on it. He had also been very helpful to several of the younger students in the class, helping them with basic software problems. I never knew anything about his background or what he did for a living, but he was clearly a skilled software person. We stood on the path talking for a few minutes, saying the usual meaningless things, like, hey, it's a nice day, and it's great to live here, and boy, we sure haven't gotten much moisture this year. Then he asked me if I was still working part-time at the university, or if I had finally retired. I told him that I was no longer teaching, that I was working as a pastor and a chaplain. Then his casual, friendly expression suddenly turned odd and for a brief paranoid moment, I thought maybe he was going to turn out to be some sort of anti-Christian guy. Then he asked me if I was a Christian pastor, and I said yes, that I'm ordained in the United Methodist Church. Then he asked me if I had a few minutes to talk, that he was just walking in a loop and could easily walk in my direction. I said sure. As we started walking, he said that his problem was that he was very sick and that he had some huge regrets in his life. Let's look at Acts, the book that details the spread of the faith outward from Jerusalem after Jesus has left the earth, first to Jews in and around Jerusalem, and then further out into many nations including what is now Turkey, Greece, and Italy. Paul was originally called Saul, perhaps after the Israelite king Saul. Paul is the Latin version of his name. Both names mean asked for or to ask for. We tend to think that Paul changed his name from Saul when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus after Jesus was killed. But even after he converted, Jesus still referred to him as Saul. In truth, dual Hebrew-Roman names were common at this time in this part of the world. We don't explicitly know why he changed his name, 
It might simply have been to make it easier to preach to non-Jews who might feel more comfortable with the Latin name Paul rather than the Hebrew name Saul. There's a passage from early in Acts before Paul goes blind and finds himself talking to the risen Lord. It refers to Stephen, who becomes one of the disciples after Jesus ascends into heaven. Stephen helps spread the faith, and this gets him into trouble. He ends up being arrested and charged with blasphemy. Instead of defending himself, he uses the opportunity to evangelize. He is dragged outside and stoned to death. We read this, and I have condensed it. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was committed to destroying the early church, and he didn't care if he had innocent people killed, something we would find horrific today. Now consider one of Paul's letters, Philippians. It's strongly believed that Paul did indeed personally write this letter. In the early 1960s, it became very common for scholars to think that this letter is actually two or three letters that were clumsily blended together into one document. For one thing, Polycarp, a second century bishop, mentions multiple letters written by Paul to Philippi. But others have argued that the changes of tone in the letter and the appearance of what appears to be closing remarks in the middle of the letter can be excused in other ways, and there's really no strong evidence that it was not always a single unified letter. Philippi is located in northeastern Greece, in an area that's still called by its ancient name Macedonia. In 365 BC, Philip of Macedon took control of an existing city called Crenides, renamed it after himself, and made it his base of operations. He used the gold and silver mine there to fund the expansion of his empire. Macedonia later became a Roman province. Philippi eventually became an important crossroads for communication and commerce. Paul founded the church there about 10 years before writing the letter that we have today. It was common practice of his to write support and counseling letters to churches he had founded. The purpose of the letter was to help people develop a truly Christian way of thinking. The Greek verb, Phronio, meaning to think, appears many, many times in the letter, revealing that he truly was trying to mold people's mindset. What did Paul believe was a distinctly Christian mindset? 
A strong focus of his is on the future. People should shift from being preoccupied with what he called earthly things to focusing on their citizenship in heaven. Consider this passage from Philippians, which again I have abbreviated. Paul was well-educated and highly respected in his society before he converted, stopped acting as an enforcer of his culture's laws, and became a wandering homeless man, begging for food and lodging and serving only to spread the faith. Here's the quote. For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The meaning of this is fairly obvious. He was quite happy to walk away from all he had done in his past life in order to follow the path that Jesus laid before him. He now finds righteousness with Jesus, not in the laws of humanity. He's willing to share in Christ's sufferings. He makes a point of saying that he certainly has not attained perfection. And many analysts have suggested that he's addressing the people at Philippi who specifically have become high and mighty, thinking that because they are Christians, they're somehow perfect now. Finally, he says that he forgets what lies behind and looks forward to what lies ahead. The prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus is in his future, not in his past. It's not that he's dismissing what he did when he was Saul. It's that he knows that God wants him to look forward, not backward. Regrets won't serve the people of God. The past often serves as a destructive distraction. I'd like to get back to Bobby, the former older student who discovered me on a path and wanted to talk about his regrets. He began telling me everything that haunted him. He had never married, never had children, never built a private life. I asked him what he had done. He said that was another problem. He had gone to college, a good one, and had gone to graduate school, but had only gotten a master's in engineering. He should have gotten a PhD, he said. He had taken a job with IBM right out of grad school and had built software for them for 30 years. He had never been promoted into management, and all he could say for himself is that his software was running in tens of thousands of computers around the world. I said that he must have earned a good living. He said yes, that he had been paid well. He, of course, had consistent employment, 
and had been able to save and invest. He had bought a home in Boulder back when prices were low. But he had no one to leave his money to, he said. He also said that he hadn't built anything in his life, that he had simply worked as a programmer doing one project after another, and that it hadn't really led anywhere. I said that most people would consider someone with a master's in engineering and 30-something years of experience as a programmer with IBM to be a sign of great success. But then the bottom line came out. He said that he had never done anything for anyone else. There's a subtlety to the passage from Philippians. Consider this again. I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's doing something here that he does in other places in his writing. He's making an analogy with a foot race. Notably, he also does this in 1 Corinthians. He's saying that if you keep looking over your shoulder, you'll just slow yourself down. He doesn't say that his goal is to be the single winner, the exalted person at the end of the race. The prize is the call of God in Christ Jesus. The word Christ means the anointed one or Messiah. The prize of this race is the call from the Messiah. It's open to everyone. Every single runner can claim the same prize. Looking behind isn't a problem because you're trying to beat the other guy to the finish line. It's because there's no other meaningful purpose than what lies ahead, that call from the Messiah. After Bobby and I had been talking for a while, I reminded him that when he first found me on the path, he said he was very sick. He said that it was kidney failure, that he was getting dialysis, and since he had just had dialysis yesterday, he was feeling pretty good today, but he would be exhausted tonight when he got home. He'd be sound asleep within an hour, and it was only mid-afternoon. I asked him if he could get a kidney transplant. He said yes, but that he would be very difficult to match, and so he might never get a transplant. He said that he didn't know how much longer he would live. Bobby repeated that he just had too many regrets, that there were so many things he could have done. One of them was being a true Christian. During all those years while working as a programmer, he had forgotten about his faith. Then we talked about Paul, that man who hunted down Christians and then ended up refusing to look at what was behind him. I pointed out that Paul certainly had a hell of a lot more regrets than him. I also noted that Paul might have lived no more than a year or so after he wrote his letter to the faithful people in Philippi. Still, 
Paul was looking forward. Bobby said that he would think about this, but that it was time to go home. We hugged, and I haven't seen him since then.